Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. First of all, Happy New Year. As a special New Year's treat, we're going to be doing two things on this episode. First, we're bringing you a story that I think will offer some hope about humanity. And secondly, we're going to take some time to dream. A few weeks ago, I invited you to describe your outdoor utopia, and we got some wonderful responses. At the end of this episode, we'll share some of those responses. But first, the story. It's a story about riding a bike in New York City. New York City is not known for being bike-friendly. The streets are busy, drivers are impatient, and pedestrians often clog up the bike lanes. So if you're a cyclist, it often seems like shouting is the only way to make people get out of your way so you can get anywhere. But several years ago, something happened on the Brooklyn Bridge that changed the way one man thinks about biking in the city. The man's name is Noam Osband, and on this episode, he shares his story. It's a story about how we communicate with strangers and about how to get what you want. I'll let Noam take it from here. And just a quick note, in case you're listening with young kids, this story does include some adult language. I've always been a chatterbox. I just like people. When I wait in line at a supermarket or a pharmacy, I always start a conversation with the person next to me. Typically, I ask people questions about themselves. Nothing too personal, nothing too direct, and most folks really just open up, as if they've been waiting for someone to puncture that invisible bubble of propriety that separates us from each other. Part of the pleasure of these conversations is just the randomness. I'm with complete strangers, but for a brief moment, the parallel lines of our lives intersect. I find that really special. It's just always been in my nature to engage with people like this. But what I didn't realize until recently was that this tendency might be more than just a goofy character trait. It might be the key to happily cycling in New York. One of my favorite places to interact with strangers is on my bike. Since I'm only crossing paths with somebody for a second or two, I don't feel inhibited or self-conscious. Instead, I'm free to be myself. And so I do things one doesn't normally do in public. So I throw my hands up, play my song, butterflies fly away. Not in my head like, yeah. Singing on my bike feels like the privacy of my bathroom mixed with the euphoria of a nice ride. I know it'll be okay. Yeah, yeah. Party in the USA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Party in the USA. So I throw my hands up. Other times when I'm biking fast and feeling energized, I just kind of howl like a wolf. Yeah. It's New York. You can do whatever you want in public. So when I'm feeling happy and extroverted, like really happy and extroverted, I just straight up talk to folks from my bike. 
At red lights, I'll compliment cyclists on their clothes. Other times, I'll make eye contact, pump my fist, and yell, YES! A simple, positive message to cyclists and pedestrians. A Joycean affirmation. It's not a dialogue. I'm just shouting out before fading into the distance. They don't have time to even say anything back. But for me, there's that moment of connection, a connection I seem to crave. Most people smile back. And then there are my more mischievous antics, like this one. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. I used to say this to people on my bike for years. I'm not entirely sure what compelled me to belt out Jesus loves you in an unidentifiable, yet clearly foreign accent. I just thought it was really funny. Partly because I'm a Jewish atheist, and partly because of the blank stares I'd get in return. Occasionally, I do go negative, but it's for a good reason. Or so I tell myself when I give the finger to New York City tour buses. I don't shout or scream curse words. You don't hear me scream, fuck you. Instead, I just make sure there are no children, and then I make eye contact with the people on the top of a double-decker bus while silently and stridently raising my middle finger. In my mind, this is actually an act of kindness. The most common reaction is laughter, and now the chuckling tourists can return home with a story about that cliche New York attitude. I laugh because I know how artificial the interaction is. I'm not actually angry. I'm just hopelessly extroverted. But as much as I love these interactions, the harsh reality of biking in a city often smothers the goodwill. Sometimes kindness doesn't seem like an option, even for a happy-go-lucky guy like me. I first rode a bike in a city at age 25. I was living in Boston, and I'd stare astonished at the bravery of people cycling down Massachusetts Ave, one of the city's busiest streets. I was envious, too, because Mass Ave terrified me. The street had no bike lanes at that time, and because it's wider than most of Boston's notoriously narrow streets, the cars go fast. It's not the best street for cycling, but the street went straight to the prison where I was working as a teacher at the time. I vowed to bike to work, and within a few months I did. I slowly acclimated to drivers honking from behind me and screaming when they passed me. I'd get deadly stares and angry shouts from so many people, even from co-workers. One afternoon, a van of corrections officers jeered me as they passed my bike. Go back to California, you hippie, screamed one especially angry man. I now live in New York City, and the situation isn't any better. If you ride in a city, you learn to accept the fact some people will always be schmucks, offering an unwanted two cents at unexpected moments. You learn that some people just don't think you have a right to be on the road, and they'll tell you that in no uncertain terms, even if you're obeying the law and minding your own business. I've resigned myself to that part of cycling. Hell, I've even accepted the fact that a certain level of sexual harassment is now par for the course. 
You see, I often ride topless on my bike. I do it for pragmatic reasons. I just don't want to dampen my shirt with sweat. And it also feels great to let the breeze rub across my bare chest. However, it's also opened me up for the first time in my white male privileged life to consistent sexual harassment. It's amazing how many dudes think, because you don't have a shirt on, they've got a right to comment on your body. Put a shirt on, fag, they'll say. Wear your clothes, they bark. They'll yell at me about my breasts and my stocky build, what we refer to in my family as the Goldberg jeans. I'm pretty sure when men scream at me, nice tits, they're being sarcastic. I'll always remember one unseasonably warm spring evening when I biked to Times Square topless around 1 a.m. A garbage man stood in the bike lane picking up trash, and as I passed him, he turned around almost colliding into me. Angrily, he screamed, What up, fat boy? His words stung. They hurt. For a couple minutes, I felt like an insecure, chubby middle schooler all over again. Sometimes the harshest words aren't even yelled. The meanest comment I have ever received came from a well-coiffed woman in Midtown. As I waited at a red light, she was walking by. She stopped in front of me, looked me up and down, and with quiet fury said, You disgust me. I'm no saint. Occasionally I respond to comments about my chest with a loud, Fuck you! And sometimes I even yell at pedestrians. There's no way around it if you bike in the Big Apple. Sure, there are designated bike lanes, but during rush hour, those bike lanes are crowded with people, cars, and food carts. Pedestrians wander about, totally oblivious to bike traffic. And because it's such a noisy city, those little bells on your handlebars don't get anyone's attention. So I often end up shouting, bike lane, at the top of my lungs. I tell myself, it's the safe thing to do. It's really the only way to get anywhere and not hit people, but I still feel like an asshole. Stuff like this gives cyclists a bad rap. More importantly, it doesn't work well. There's so much noise in New York that another loud voice amid the din doesn't really stick out. It's no wonder there's animosity between cyclists and the rest of New Yorkers. At times, the animosity seems fixed, unalterable. For a while, it seemed that the lion was more likely to lie with the lamb than the cyclist with the pedestrian. Until that is, one day I cracked the code. January 1st, 2017 was a day full of joy. The night before, I'd seen Fish play a great concert at Madison Square Garden. I've seen the band over 30 times, but it was my first time catching the New Year's Eve show. Also helping the cause was the tab of acid I split with a friend at the concert. Enjoying my post-show glow, I walked home to my apartment in Brooklyn, a three-hour walk. I enjoyed the unseasonably warm air as I made my way down Manhattan and to the Brooklyn Bridge. The bridge was completely empty, save for the cops on patrol. It was so unusual to have it all to myself. 
Usually the Brooklyn Bridge is a complete tourist trap, clogged with hundreds of people meandering along in the bike lane and posing for photos. Every cyclist knows that you skip the Brooklyn Bridge if you can help it. Yeah, it has amazing views of the Statue of Liberty and the Manhattan skyline, but the throngs of people make it so hard to get through that I don't usually get to even savor the vista. But that night, walking into Brooklyn with the bridge empty, there was nobody around, so I turned around and actually walked backwards, savoring the view with each step. Lower Manhattan from a distance is really one of the prettiest things I know. I've always loved that view. It's huge lit buildings, all that human striving and creation under an unending sky. And for once, I was actually able to enjoy it calmly and alone. Seeing what humankind has erected on that island, it just it makes me proud and happy to be a homo sapien. The following day, January 1st, I was headed back into Manhattan, excited to record interviews on the street for my first paid podcasting freelance work. I packed my gear with gusto and I headed on bike into town. I got to the Brooklyn Bridge and the combination of a holiday and balmy weather meant the bridge was more packed than usual. I mean, it was completely full of pedestrians in the bike lane. It was super annoying but I didn't want to yell at people to get out of the way. Fish, New Year's, The View, this gig, it all conspired to make me unreasonably optimistic. And so instead of yelling, I tried something different. I began to sing. Not the Miley Cyrus type singing, not singing just because I'm happy. This was purposeful singing, singing to accomplish something. What happened next was amazing. Amazing in that I can't really believe this is happening so easily kind of way. People moved. They heard me and they stepped aside, letting me pass smoothly and easily. And not just that, they smiled. They laughed. They were doing what I wanted, what I needed, and they were happy about it. I hadn't planned out this new strategy, but it was working. It was working amazingly well. Working better than anything else I had tried before. Better than any bell or any yell. I was biking, singing, connecting with strangers, and making them happy. Basically, my own personal idea of heaven. I sang my way across that bridge. It augured well for the new year. Almost three months later, I was by myself in Mexico for a film festival. The festival in Puerto Vallarta had put me up in an all-inclusive beachside hotel for two nights. I sat over dinner with a bottle of wine and a book entitled Marry Me, a John Updike novel about divorce. 
I finished most of the book and the whole bottle of wine, and before taking my happy buzz for a walk on the beach, I chose to waste a few minutes on the internet in my room. I went to the Reddit front page and saw a link entitled, How to Clear Out the Bike Lane, and an image of a cyclist with a red bag that looked exactly like the bag I use. I clicked on the link, and sure enough, it was me singing my way through the crowd on January 1st. The video was entitled, Bike Lane Hero, New Year's Day. It's a weird feeling finding yourself on the front page of Reddit. I had no idea I had even been filmed, or that the film was now viral. In fact, it's now been watched over 1.4 million times. There's something so meaningful about the fact that the friendliest way to cross the bridge is also the most effective. It feels like some sort of biblical parable, a reward for kindness. New York was the home of baseball manager Leo DeRocher, who famously said, nice guys finish last. And when I read the news these days, I worry he might be right. But you know what gives me hope? The simple fact that singing and smiling across the bridge is the fastest way to get from Brooklyn to Manhattan. Took all those years of yelling from my bike to find that out. Maybe we live in a world where nice people can finish first. We just need to sing more to find that out. That was Noam Osband. He's an audio producer who currently lives in San Francisco. If you enjoyed this story, check out the other piece Noam did for Out There. It's called Seeing the Forest Through the Trees, and it's about the surprising things Noam learned about himself while conducting anthropological research about migrant tree planters. Again, that episode is called Seeing the Forest Through the Trees. You can also see more of Noam's work at noamosband.com. Coming up, as I promised at the beginning of the episode, we're going to talk about an outdoor utopia. But first, imagine owning your own outdoor company and spending each day doing the work you love. If you are an outdoors person with an idea for an outdoor product or service, how would you like a whole lot of support working your idea into a real live business? Turns out you're in luck. Our sponsor for this episode is Moose Jaw, which is a fun-loving outdoor retail company. They are sponsoring their second Outdoor Industry Accelerator program. The program is designed to help entrepreneurs get their ideas on the table. Industry leaders will be available to you from retail experts to marketing experts with the know-how you need. The program has a proven track record. The three chosen participants from the last Accelerator program now all enjoy running their own outdoor companies. Do you have a dream? Then go for it. Applications are open now through January 14th. 
To find out more, visit the URL in our show notes or email tanner at icelab.co. And now it's time to dream a little. You may remember that earlier this month, I invited you all to share your vision of an outdoor utopia. I wanted to hear your ideas for a more perfect world. In a perfect world, what would the outdoors look like for you? How would you feel? How would that be different from now? Your responses surprised me a little. A few of you dreamed up a true utopia, an imaginary place where everything is idyllic. But most of you described places that actually exist, places you love, places you can't wait to return to. In retrospect, I guess it's not that surprising. 2020 has been a difficult year, and for many, it's meant a lot more time indoors, fewer opportunities to unplug and get out to your happy places. When we're trapped indoors in the middle of an awful year, it can be hard to dream up a utopia. Perfection seems so far out of reach that instead we fall back on the things we know, places that are familiar, scenarios we understand. So with that in mind, here are some of my favorite tidbits from the voice messages you sent us about your utopias. I hope some of these thoughts resonate with you. And if not, please don't hesitate to let us know. We're always happy to hear from you. My outdoor utopia is most definitely someplace very remote with (laughs) snow-covered mountains and dense pine forests. My outdoor utopia is vast and quiet, but also filled with life and movement and sound at the same time. My utopia is a forever fall, bonfires and s'mores. There's a gargling stream at the base of a mountain range full of trout. (laughs) It's this wilderness area in West Virginia that's just soaked in moss. Like everywhere you look, blanketed with moss and it's so so silent because all of the moss acts as like a sound reduction carpet and it's just so so peaceful and serene and it also looks like you could just lay down anywhere on the moss and take a nap. My outdoor utopia definitely has to be coral reefs and the ocean. Either while diving or snorkeling It feels as though I'm flying over a city, a city filled with corals, fish, algae, and invertebrates. As a marine biologist, sometimes it feels like I'm a superhero flying over this city in order to protect it. I envision people of all ethnicities, religions, abilities, gender, you know, gender presentation as a utopia in the outdoors. It is a space of psychological and physical safety for all. Whether you're 
walking, swimming, flying, diving, whatever you feel totally free. That is part of my utopia, not just like the scenery, but the feeling that we can all just like coexist in this beautiful place together. It is a space of hugs. It is a space of high fives again. It is a space of friendship. As a human in it, you're reminded of how very small you are in this vast place. And instead of making you feel insignificant, it makes you realize that you're just one tiny part of this amazing fabric. The voices you just heard on that montage were Brittany Greenwalt, Tiffany Duong, Ashley White, Rosalie Hazlett, Colin Howe, and Francis Mendoza. Tiffany and Ashley are both out there ambassadors. Brittany is the founder of the 11th Essential, which is aimed at cleaning up parks and public lands. Colin is a marine biologist at Penn State. Rosalie is a nature illustrator with strong connections to her Appalachian roots, and Francis is a naturalist and interpretive ranger dedicated to environmental justice. You can find out where to follow all of these wonderful individuals at our website, outtherepodcast.com. To everyone who participated, thank you so much for sharing your vision of an outdoor utopia. Thank you also to everyone who is supporting Out There financially. Each of our episodes takes weeks, if not months, to put together. The storytellers you hear on the show are talented professionals. They are writers, they are journalists, they are audio producers, and they deserve to be compensated fairly for their time and expertise. Because we are a small, independent production, our budget is also small. I haven't taken home a paycheck since March. Every extra dollar is going toward paying our team and our freelancers better and toward growing our audience so that we have a larger, more reliable revenue stream in the future. Even so, I can't pay the wonderful people who work on this show anywhere near what they deserve. So, if Out There brightens your day consider helping us out. You can make a contribution in any amount, and your gift will go directly toward paying for the beautiful stories you hear on this show. There are several easy ways to give. You can make a contribution on Venmo. We're at outthere-podcast. You can donate through our website, outtherepodcast.com. You can send us a check, or you can become a patron on Patreon. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform for creative endeavors. It lets you make monthly contributions to projects you care about, like this podcast. Again, no gift is too small. Every contribution helps, even if it's just a dollar or two a month. Thank you so much for your support. If 
you're new to Out There, check out our Best of Out There playlist. It's a curated list of our best episodes of all time. You can find it at our website, outtherepodcast.com. That's it for this episode. Our strategic advisor is Alex Eggerking. Our audience growth director is Sheba Joseph. Jessica Taylor is our advertising manager. Our interns are Kara Schaefer and Margaret Warner and Stephanie Maltrich. Our ambassadors are Ashley White, Stacia Bennett, and Tiffany Duong. And our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. We'll see you in two weeks. And in the meantime, Happy New Year.